Since the answer came to me very simply in the first step of the 12 steps of AA, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. This didn't say we had to be in jail 10, 50, or 100 times. It didn't say I had to lose one, five, or 10 jobs. It didn't say I had to lose my family. It didn't say I had to finally live on Skid Row and drink bay rum, canned heat, or lemon extract. It did say I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast, episode 20. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for tuning in today. We're sitting here with Robert J. I met Robert several years ago and he's always been one of my favorite voices in the rooms. It's nice to see him again and catch up after this hectic year of COVID and meetings shutting down and whatnot. So it's my pleasure to have him with us. And without further delay, we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome, Robert. Um, it's great to have you here with us today. Thanks for doing the podcast. Um, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, of course. Why don't we get started with your sober date? December 1st, 1991. And how many days is that? Uh, give me a minute and I can tell you. Sometimes you share it in the meetings, you know, how many days it is. And we're just like, whoa. I try to do it that way. Uh, <clears throat> just because when I got sober, that was one of the things that um, we used to do is just go by days. Yeah. So it is 10,581 days. Man. All right. How many years is that? <laughs> 28, almost 29. It'll be 29 uh, in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Well, congrats on 28. And um, I'll see you at 29, man. That's great. Yes, you will. Where's your home group? I hope so. Uh, I've been kind of in between home groups, but I'm kind of leaning more towards uh, the Triangle Club again. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. uh, for a while, I had two different home groups here, and it was the Triangle Club and uh, Sober Solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the Triangle Club. I've been um, hitting it up every so often now these days. It's a great meeting. It's a good place. It's a good place, yeah. A lot of gut-level shares. I like that. That was one of the things that attracted me to that place was uh, that gut-level Mm-hmm. stuff that you get there yeah so why don't you tell us what it was like growing up for you well um i grew up in the bay area in california mainly uh oakland and alameda and um that's pretty much where i started my uh, partying career is in oakland um started kind of the the weekend warrior thing and then it progressed uh fairly rapidly by the time I was 13. You had your first drink pretty early then in life. Yeah, I started to, uh, right around eight or nine, uh, when I started to learn how to work on cars. Wow, eight or nine. And started, yeah, started riding motorcycles about the same time. And uh, just was hanging out with my oldest brother and 
that was where I had my first beer. Mm. Do you remember your first drunk? Um, vaguely, <laughs> I, I guess, <laughs> you know, you might say my first drunk was, uh, the first time I drank with my brother and his friend when I was learning how to work on cars. Mm. Um, I didn't really get too drunk at that point, but probably my first drunk was, uh, I don't know. I would have to say in the seventh grade. Mm. How did the rest of your school go? You know, the school years. I did um, averaging probably like A, B uh, up until the eighth grade. And then they started to falter because I started getting more concerned with my party and career and uh, causing trouble. Hmm. And just kind of straight away from the school stuff. I didn't really, I wasn't really interested. Um, I guess it was because the, the party and career started to take precedence then. What kind of trouble did you find yourself in? <laughs> uh, stealing things from stores. Um, got into stealing cars. Uh, started getting into fights a lot. Got myself kicked out of... Um, the whole uh, Oakland Unified School District from one fight and uh, just carried it on from there. And seventh grade, um, when I moved uh, from Oakland to St. Leandro to live with my oldest brother, who kind of got me started with drinking. I mean, I can't really say it was him that got me started. I just got my first beer from him and then it just went from there. You know, but in the seventh grade, I started getting into more trouble, found myself in a gang, um, and then progressively rose from there. So then your youth was, you were pretty active um, in the streets then, and yeah. getting into trouble, I take it. Yeah. It's, uh, I, you know, it's, it's been said a lot by different people that, you know, um, I guess I was looking for that acceptance, that feeling of want, being wanted. I didn't really feel like I was getting much of that at home. So I started turning to the streets, the people I was hanging out with. And then I started finding that more and more there than I was at home. As you got older then, um, you were able to you know, make your own decisions and by force, I imagine, make a living. I guess I'm curious as to how it was like when you started getting close to the age of 21 where you could freely buy liquor. I'm not sure if it was 18 or 21 and that It was 21. Okay. It was 21. But I found myself, uh, there was a store, two stores and a bar that I used to go into starting at the age of 15. I was able to go in and I wasn't carted until I turned 21. And it was kind of funny because uh, I walked into one of the stores and I bought what I usually did was uh, either a pint or a fifth of tequila and some beer, a bunch of beer. And then um, when I got to the counter with the beer, the case of beer, and asked for at that point a fifth of tequila, the guy asked to see my ID and I started laughing. I told him, 
you're really going to hate this. I showed him my ID, and he was like, so I've been selling to you for four, five years, six years. I said, yep. How does that feel? Oh, man. <laughs> so then around this time then, what year was that? That was in, uh, what, when I turned 21? Yeah. That was in 81, 1981. Okay. So you had, you went on about a 10-year run, um, legally anyways. Um, were you working at the age of 21 and making a living, or was it rough? You can call it that, um, I guess. I was working here and there. At the time, I was, uh, I would quit a job before I can get fired for any reason. And it was usually because, um, you know, my reasoning was the work was getting in the way of my partying. I wanted to party more. So I just would work for a while until I felt that it was going to be a little bit of trouble. Then I would quit. And uh, a lot of what I was doing, making money otherwise from, I don't know, probably 14 years old on up was um, I was selling drugs and stealing cars and selling the parts. Were you selling the parts for just to party yeah. with that money or? Yeah. And yeah. that's where I was getting most of my money to, to party and to get the drugs that I was buying so I can in turn make more by selling it. Mm. Um. Did you start to think that maybe things were a little out of control or had anybody pinpointed that maybe you have a problem? Uh, actually, my sister tried telling me that at one point in, I think it was 1987, 1988. We both used to work at a nightclub together and she had brought that up. And my reaction was um, I got pissed and instead of taking that out on her, I slammed my own head into an oak wood door. And I told her at the time, there is no problem. Because, it, you know, for a long time, I didn't feel like there was. Uh, I just, you know, anything that was negative that was going on, I attributed it to the cops or some of the disposable acquaintances that I had. I never took any responsibility for it or anything. So in my head, there was no problem. So how long did that work for you <laughs> until, until you yourself thought maybe that, that was a didn't problem. occur until, uh, one of my last arrests, which was in 1990, 1991. Um, but it still didn't sink in until I actually came into the rooms. Then I started to see, then I started to see that there was the problem and that I was the problem, not the disposable acquaintances or the cops. How did you eventually get to the rooms then? And because, well, what year did you finally find an AA meeting and what got you there? Uh, what got me there was a judge. Um, after probably three different uh, programs that did not work, Actually, two others. No, it was three. Three others that didn't work. I was sent into a program where the counselor actually was a member of AA. And um, 
she was freely calling everybody on their crap. And so I started taking to her. She was, I guess you, you can say she was like a interim sponsor for me because I started going to her with a lot of stuff, asking questions. And um, she started giving me direct answers. Um, and then from there, I started going into rooms outside of that uh, session with her. And that was like a, a weekly session. I was just wondering what your first meeting of AA was like and what did you think? My first one was boring. It really wasn't doing anything for me. Um, a friend of mine that I worked with took me to a meeting in Alameda, California, and it just wasn't doing it for me. So he suggested, well, why don't we try this other one over at Central Office in Oakland, not too far from where I lived. So we went there, and I kind of started to wake up a little bit more. And then he took me into uh, San Francisco to a place called the Dry Dock. And um, that one started to open my eyes a little bit more. And that was where the attraction, so to speak, started coming upon me, um, even though it wasn't quite the correct attraction. Um, and I say that meaning that, you know, my first attraction to AA was the women that I was seeing at the meeting at the dry dock. And um, so my buddy decided, well, if you like this one, you're going to like the next one. And then he took me to a place called Tuesday Downtown in San Francisco. And that became my first home group. Um, and that was the first time. After almost a month of being there, I finally started to introduce myself as an alcoholic, but I wasn't um, fully meaning it. I was starting to understand maybe there was a problem, you know, so between that and my counselor, um, her name was Bonnie. She, you know, between them two, I started to get a little bit more into um, the sobriety. I started to get a little bit more honest with myself, even though I wasn't fully honest. So my first run through the steps with that buddy of mine who became my first sponsor wasn't completely honest. And my first step with him wasn't a full 100% first step. Um, and then I went through another sponsor who... Uh, started to dig a little bit deeper and then I started to say a little bit more of the problem and um, I started going to uh, treasure meetings in San Francisco which is uh, where I started to honestly get sober through them why do you think that you were afraid to be completely honest at first Honestly, I still was thinking that I didn't have a problem. Even though I'd been through, uh, I think, four DUI, no, three DUI classes and three, four, including the other program that I was in when I first came into the rooms, I still was thinking that there was no problem. And um, my whole time in my first year, I spent kicking and screaming and I've shared it 
probably 50 times here that, you know, I kicked and screamed the whole time throughout my first year because I still wasn't thinking that I was, that there was a problem. And my first thoughts were, as soon as my probation's done and I'm done being tested, I'm going right back to the life that I had before. How did you feel in that first year? Were you kind of white knuckling it? It wasn't kind of white knuckling. I was seriously white knuckling because I didn't want it. I wanted to be back into my party and I wanted to be back with my friends, my family that I thought was my friends and family, but I wasn't seeing that most of them um, really weren't there for me when I was in jail or when I was coming out of jail. You know, because of my partying career, I took a lot of vacations. And those vacations were spending time Mm. in jail. When you were in jail, did you get a big book or anything? No. Not in jail. I got um, probably after my 10th time being arrested at least. My brother-in-law, who's been in the program for almost 10 years longer than me, he had given me my first big book, but it went from his hands to mine to a bookshelf. And then it stayed there for probably eight years. I never touched it in until I got my first sponsee. How did you finally get to the first step 100%? Um, it was after I heard a guy named Sean Sangling speak at a, a meeting. And you know how when at meetings you hear people saying, keep going to meetings, you're going to hear your story eventually? Yeah. Well, when I got to this meeting, I heard my story. And so then um, after that meeting, you know, I, I knew him, but I never really heard his story. I'd heard bits and pieces and, you know, at, other meetings, I was hearing bits and pieces of my story from other people. But that particular meeting at St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco, um, I heard his story and I was like, oh, that is me. I mean, 100%. And so when I, I walked up to him and I asked him if he would be willing to help me, he said, yeah, when do you want to get started? He said, when can we? And he said, well, can you be at my house tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock? And I said, sure. I was there at 8.30, banging on his door. Mm-hmm. And the way I worked my first step with him was, and I try to do it with other sponsees, is I have, he had me look at um, the first step in a different way than I've ever looked at it before. Just not looking at, I was powerless and my life had become unmanageable. He had me look at the my life had become unmanageable part first. Hmm. So I usually say step one B is what actually got me um, hmm. to be a hundred percent. So your life at that point you understood was unmanageable. Yeah, and that is pretty powerful because you've had a deep sense of denial throughout this time. Um, you know, listening to you say that you still didn't have a problem, um, even after all your arrests and stuff, 
Yeah, like I said, all my arrests, I was contributing to all my disposable acquaintances and the police that were arresting me. So that's where my denial was at. I kept saying, well, it was their fault. It was their fault. If that cop wasn't there, I wouldn't have got arrested. You know, and, and so it was a it was a deep rooted, angry resentment towards the people that I was around and uh, the cops. So then, as you started working with this individual, what was different this time? Uh, in San Francisco, the Chargers are also known as book thumpers, and. He started working me on the first step, and one of the things that he had read was, I think it was you had pulled it out and read it the other night um, about Jim and his story, about wandering into a place that he had frequented, you know, and saying, well, I guess it wouldn't hurt having a, a shot of whiskey with my milk. You know, and so my sponsor, um, when we read that, uh, he asked me, does that sound like it's uncontrollable, you know, unmanageable? You know, and I, I had to think about it. And he said, you know, he wanted me to think of my own experience as it would relate to that. So then I started to look back at, you know, all the different times I tried saying, I'm just going to have a beer or I'm just going to have one shot. You know, and I think um, at a meeting at the Triangle Club, I think you were there. I shared a little bit about my experience with the first step and my experience at my, my unmanageability. You know, it, it it was apparent reading that and then reading in, um, it might have been worse, where um, they described what the first step didn't say and what it did say. Since the answer came to me very simply in the first step of the 12 steps of AA, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. <clears throat> this didn't say we had to be in jail 10, 50, or 100 times. It didn't say I had to lose one, five, or 10 jobs. It didn't say I had to lose my family. It didn't say I had to finally live on Skid Row and drink bay rum, canned heat, or lemon extract. It did say I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. And for me, I had to admit my life was unmanageable before I could see the powerlessness. So then what got you to Colorado from California? Did you go? Um, did you come to Colorado right after California, the Bay Area? No, I continued to stay in California. And I, uh, at the time when I got sober, I was working in the music industry, and I spent twenty years in that industry. And part of that time, in my well, my early sobriety, all the way up until ninety or no two thousand, when I first moved to Idaho, I. Um, was in the music industry. So for almost 10 years of my early sobriety, I'd spent in the same industry that I was able to get the alcohol and the drugs. 
That must uh, have been hard. It was, and after a while, I started looking at it as um, a way to strengthen me because, you know, in the treasure groups, they would always say things like, you know, watching people and saying, that's me. But I was only worse. You know, and so I would, I had a constant reminder of what I was like when I was drinking, even when I was on the job, I was constantly drinking when I was on the job and every job that I had, I was drinking every time. And I would drink from the time I woke up all the way through school. When I was going to school when I started working, I drink when I wake up and then I'd go to work and I would still drink while I was at work. And then I'd get off of work and I'd party more, you know, and, and in my first 10 years, I was getting to see what I was like when I was drinking and the jobs that I had in the music industry gave me enough time where, you know, I can at least go to a meeting somewhere during the day, you know, before going to work or um, on a lunch break or after work, I was always at a meeting. So it, it kind of became um, a different I seek more um, when I became honest with my program and became honest with my sobriety. You know, when I drank, it was like I seek more alcohol, I seek more of the drugs, I seek more of that acceptance. And when I got sober with these treasures in San Francisco, it was the same thing. But I was seeking more of the sobriety because I was in the music industry. I, you know, was really feeling strongly that I need to keep strengthening my sobriety so I can stay in this job that I love and stay sober. So the Bay Area and the Chargers group there had a big impact on your sobriety. Yes. How did you transition to another group? Because you didn't stay in the Bay Area forever. No. Um, I had moved to Rupert, Idaho, and I started going to a group there. And I, For a while, I wasn't feeling like I was getting all of what I needed that I left behind. Um, then I had heard about a group that was failing, and a few people that talked to me about um, taking over the group bringing it to the area committee that I wanted to um, uh, come into this group and try and rebuild it. And one friend had suggested, you know, if you can do this, maybe you can bring in that sobriety that you had in San Francisco with these treasures and bring it here. So that was what I did. I started a group out of another failing group and started injecting San Francisco treasure sobriety into that area. And that group wound up going from an average of a core group of like five or six people to about 20 people every week on an average. And it was constantly growing. I was feeling pretty good about it because I was bringing some sobriety that I had learned in San Francisco and I was able to bring it to these people 
So then you eventually made it to Colorado out here. Yeah. And how was that for you after, um, I'm not sure what brought you out here, but, um, you know, here you are again, finding another group. Well, um, I got to kind of go back a little bit also because I also spent time in Arizona with my sister and I found groups out there that I liked. Um, There was a Native American group out there that I really got heavy into and I tried to bring some of their sobriety with me. Um, What what brought me here to Colorado was kind of a sick mind. Um, And I say that because my last few years in California, I started straying from meetings. I started straying from um, what was my home group at the Ilano Club in Antioch, California. I started straying away from there. I wasn't going to meetings as much. I wasn't um, taking on sponsees as much as I was. I started um, slacking on doing H&I. All the things that got me sober and helped keep me sober I started straying away from, um, and then I kind of um, listened to the wrong head, the wrong mind. I got into the the dangerous neighborhood between my ears, and I started talking to a woman that lived here, um, and that's what actually brought me here was a woman that did not work, but yet um, I found the groups here when Sober Solutions was on Lashley. I started going there. And then because of people there, I started finding like the Triangle Club and a couple other groups out here. And I started going to those groups. Hmm. And then I, I had been working on trying to regain the sobriety, trying to put myself through what um my three sponsors because for a while in san francisco i actually had three sponsors all at the same time and that was sean sailing the first one with the trudgers and then his sponsor rick the hat and then another sponsor william and i i tried to do you know i tried to dive back into the book or books um the way they had me do it and that's what started to bring me back. And then I started to stray again, especially after all this COVID stuff hit, you know, because we weren't able to go to meetings as much. Um, it, for a while, I was getting kind of a little bit of fear of going to the meetings because of the COVID thing. Um, but I started getting over that fear. And part of it was, you know, one of my sponsors used to say, you know, just um, I so I kind of put my fear of going to uh, meetings because of the COVID thing into the same fear bracket that I had of going to meetings in the first place. And one of my sponsors used to tell me, "You played football, so think of yourself as a fullback, and your fear of whatever is that defensive line." And so to get to make it through, you just got to plow through. So I started trying to get back into the book and just trying to get back into the meetings. Now I have to get myself back into contact with my sponsor more like I used to. So what's it like today then? 
Today, um, I'm back at step one again, but one of the things that I was taught was every day you're at step one because of a new day. You know, I'm powerless over the new day. I'm powerless over what this day can bring me. And if I choose to follow that powerlessness, my life will become unmanageable again because I'm starting to follow something that I shouldn't be, which a big chunk of that is Robert. You know, when I start looking at life as Robert sees it, as Robert sees it can get Robert in trouble, which has been proven in in my sobriety even. So, you know, I have to keep that as a reminder. So I keep myself at step one, no matter what step I'm on. And then that's also something that Sean and Rick had really drilled into me. When you find yourself having a problem with a step, go back to step one. And replace I'm powerless over alcohol with I'm powerless over my fear of doing this step or just I'm powerless over step three or I'm powerless over step four. I'm powerless over what, whatever it is that's going on that's keeping me from doing whatever step it is. So even though you have all this time in sobriety, you still have these challenges that require you to go through some step work. Yeah. And that's, that's um, something else that I learned from the trudgers is the 12th step plainly tells you towards the end of the 12th step, practice these principles in all our affairs, which means it's like playing football. You have to practice, even though you're already good with what you're doing, you have to practice as a musician, you have to practice to keep it up. So with the sobriety, if you're not practicing your sobriety and your routine with your sobriety, then you're going to start losing it. So mm -hmm. I fully believe that, you know, they put the word practice in there for a reason, because you're not done. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. If we had to sum up what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, um, how would you quickly do that? Um, life was great. Life uh, was great with consequences. And then um, it turned out to be consequences sprinkled with a little bit of fun. Now, um, you know, uh, I just moved in back in with a roommate and I'm feeling like I'm kind of at the bottom, but, you know, because I'm living in his garage and I never thought that I would see myself living in a garage, but it's helping bring me back to the humility. And I'm not using the term humility as in humiliation, but being humble and being able to humbly be grateful that I have a place, even though it's a garage, I have a place to live. I'm still employed. I'm not wanting to quit my job because it's getting in the way of anything. You know, and, and as I said earlier, I spent my whole entire partying career leaving jobs because it was getting in the way of my drinking. Um, I spent 
time leaving bands that I was in because the rehearsals were getting in the way. You know, so now I'm being humbled again, but I'm staying sober, you know, and I keep hearing my sponsors, Sean and Rick and William, always saying, you don't ever have to drink no matter how much you want to. You know, and I've gone through both parents passing away and I didn't have to drink. You know, every year, twice a year, I think about my daughter, my first daughter, who was killed. And I can get through that without having to drink. So as you're going through this um, time right now, you haven't thought about a drink? Um, no, just drinking my coffee or water. Yeah. You know, um, there's a lot of people that say, you know, a fleeting thought might come into my head. Well, that sounds good. But something else that comes into my head right after that is, you know, I'm not responsible for my first thought. It's the reaction or the action that I take on that thought. So I can think, you know, that drink sounds pretty good. I never had that drink before. You know, what's it like? I'm not responsible for that thought. But if I take that thought and make it an action to go ahead and get that drink, that's what I'm responsible for. And my biggest fear now is I can, you know, go back to drinking, no problem. But if I went back to drinking, my biggest fear is, not being able to make it back in the rooms. What do you think about the future? I try not to. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, um, it's just a one day at a time thing. You know, it's, uh, it's, I started thinking about the future not too long ago with, you know, after, when I moved, I injured my arm and I haven't been able to work in almost two weeks. So I've been going nuts and I've been starting to think because of my injury, it might cost me my job. So then I have to try and tell myself, don't dwell on the future. Think about the present right now and just do the next right thing that you have to do so you can try and assure that your job is still there. What kind of advice would you give yourself in your first or second year of sobriety if you could talk to that, Robert? Get some earplugs and pull your head out of your butt. <laughs> 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 that's some tough AA talk, man. Well, that's pretty much, you know, what I had to do. And as Sean had told me, you know, that pop is going to be really loud when you pull your head out of your butt. You know, and that's exactly what I needed. Yeah. That old school AA, sometimes I still hear it in the rooms. And it sounds harsh, but I get it. Yeah. You know, and what you got to think about it, when Bill and them were doing it, they were pretty harsh, but they also did something that uh, some of the guys that I got sober with would help a newcomer do as well. You know, but these guys were mostly harsh, and it was just to get you to get your head out of your backside to listen yeah if that well, makes any sense because yeah go ahead have you ever had to talk to somebody who kind of got told 
some harsh things in a meeting? Because I kind of worry about that sometimes. Have I ever talked to them harshly or talked to them after they've been talked to harshly? Maybe talk to them after they've been talked to harshly. Like, do you give them some encouragement or? Yeah, I've talked to a few people. Well, I've brought some of that um, directness and bluntness to my shares when I speak in a meeting. You know, when, when I'm the speaker at a meeting, it, it, I can be pretty direct. And that's one of the things that attracts me to the Triangle Club is that gut level experience. Most people aren't going to be pulling any punches. And that's the kind of sobriety that I started out with. And that kind of bluntness helped me get sober. I would say to a newcomer, pretty much what I say to any newcomer that I talk to, and that is, just like I said at the meeting the other night, just stay. Yeah. I was going to ask um, if you had any parting words of wisdom or any favorite sayings that really helped you out through your, uh, what is it, 28 years of sobriety? 28. Yeah. Um, pretty much what I said a little while ago, just um, always remember the first step. Take the first step every morning when you get up. You know, do that first step. Remind myself. You know, for me, it's always reminding myself that I'm powerless over this day. Um, another thing that I used to hear a lot, which also helps me, is always remember that last drunk, no matter what it was. You know, whether it was a good drunk or a bad drunk. Um, and one of the signs that we have here where I live says the same thing. Always remember that last drunk. And uh, one of these days I'll wear this um, T-shirt that has a big reminder for me because my last drunk was at a Queensryche concert and I showed up late because I was drinking and I was not able to work the show, but I was able to be there and that got me to my last drunk. I just drank up a storm that whole night. Thanks again, Robert, for sharing your experience, strength and hope with us. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Recovery Edgecast, episode 20. Remember, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and anywhere you like to listen to your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.